Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 1. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And behold, this also is vanity. We are focusing here upon a king. This is an account of a king's search for personal fulfilment in life. Solomon because he had access to virtually limitless resources, having had great wealth bestowed upon him by God, seeks to apply his amazing intellectual abilities to attaining the highest level of meaning in life, along with a personal satisfaction of one's innermost desires. Solomon then engages in an attempt to maximise the enjoyment of human pleasure. He aims to achieve the highest possible level of satisfying one's senses, one's feelings. What will stimulate him and give him the greatest sense of joy and exhilaration at any one moment. Now, on a much cruder level, what Solomon is doing here is actually what so many people in our own day sinfully do seeking for gratification by turning, for example, to drugs in the vain hope that the experience they get from taking the drugs will enable them to feast upon their sensations and hopefully thereby escape from the realities of life. Now, what Solomon is doing here is not as openly sinful as that, but it is actually on the same level. Uh, He's trying to look for true happiness in sensual enjoyment. He is determined to pursue experience for its own sake and for the feelings of elation which experience can give. I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. And so Solomon, in his heart, calls himself to attention, go to now. He is going to prove, test and experiment on himself to see how he responds 
to mirth, joy, gladness, exhilaration. So, as he does this, we are not by any means thinking of pursuing activities which are necessarily sinful. Rather, Solomon is going to feast himself upon those things which all agree are the good things of life. And Solomon has been trying to see if his heart can be satisfied by doing all the things which usually make people happy. And he, of course, has infinitely more resources than most people with which to indulge in this unbridled pursuit of pleasure and happiness. And so he has immersed himself, because he's actually looking back on what he has been doing, he has immersed himself in pleasure to a degree which most people can only dream of. There is simply no enjoyable human experience which he has deprived himself of. But having conducted this grand experiment over an extended period of time, at the conclusion of it all, this earnest seeking after pleasure, fulfilment and happiness, Solomon has actually discovered that he has failed to obtain any lasting contentment at all. And so we read at the end of this first verse here, and behold, this also is vanity. He sought to prove his heart with mirth, and to enjoy or pleasure, but he found it all to be an ultimate vanity, futility, emptiness. And so he can only declare, after all his doubtless very expensive and extensive endeavours in the pursuit of personal fulfilment and happiness, he has found everything to be vanity. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Uh, The word rendered laughter also means to make sport, to play. So Solomon indulged himself in all kinds of recreational activities. He pursued all kinds of amusement. Not necessarily sinful. He went after experiences of joy and exhilaration. And his endeavours may well have included physical activity, including what we would call today sport. 
Uh, many people engage in sport as a pursuit of personal fulfilment. And many people watch sport as a pursuit of personal fulfilment. Uh, and they see happiness as their football team winning a championship. And the whole existence tends to focus upon that. That's a real phenomenon in contemporary society. Solomon, however, has found all his endeavours to be an ultimate madness. I said of laughter. It is mad. So he has been going around having a really good time. He has been thoroughly enjoying himself with all his friends. But it did not satisfy him. It is mad. The Hebrew word uh, translated uh, mad there actually carries the connotation of boasting. Solomon gave himself to know the things which people boast of in the area of sensual delight. Oh, I had this amazing time. I had this amazing experience. Solomon, because of his resources, reveled in this world's pleasures. And again, we're not saying he, he was sinfully doing so. But he was trying to eke out every ounce of enjoyment and pleasure and satisfaction that this world could offer him. But ultimately he found it all to be essentially empty. In fact, he found it to be also loud and brash and of no lasting value. So Solomon would have doubtless organised magnificent social occasions. Inviting many eminent guests to one of his wonderful buildings which he had made. Where they could all gather together in beautiful surroundings. He would have engaged in much banqueting. He would have been able to indulge himself in what we might call high living. And as part of this, all these great social occasions, there would have been scintillating wit and conversation taking place. He would have had what we would normally call today a great time. He would have sought out every possible entertainment and diversion and means of human satisfaction. Yet despite all his indulgence in these areas, on considering the ultimate effect of it all upon him, he can only conclude, I said of laughter with all my friends, 
It is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? What did I actually accomplish in the end? These things produced for him no lasting contentment whatsoever. Someone today, sitting at home on their own, perhaps with not many friends or social contacts, might be thinking, oh, if only I could bring more purpose into my life by going to lots of social gatherings. Well, there's a place for those things, of course. But not (coughs) for seeking a personal fulfilment and meaning of life in those things. Verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. Now, Solomon is not speaking here of drinking wine to excess, which is sinful. But he is talking about a sophisticated exploration of the joys of wine. So as to obtain the optimum satisfaction from this activity. Satisfaction in particular of the palate, finding the most beautiful and satisfying taste. So we are told he gave himself or gave his heart to wine. In the original Hebrew, Hebrew, it is literally, he sought to draw his flesh with wine. Draw his flesh. To attract the flesh with wine. So, we see that the satisfaction and stimulation of the flesh is the aim of the refined study of the delights of Wine drinking. It can produce feelings of exhilaration through means of one's taste buds. So we're not talking about a sinful pursuit of a mindless intoxication here. Because we note that Solomon adds in this verse 3, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom. So his examination of the joys of wine was cultured and restrained. He resolved also to lay hold on folly, verse 3, meaning that he sought to grasp folly so as to control it and keep it at bay. So he wasn't going to allow the wine drinking to end up as just the pursuit of drinking and intoxication for their own sake. He sought to understand all the finer points of satisfying the human palate. And not just with wine alone, but doubtless with food and drink, Generally, 
The goal being to find out the best possible things that men could do and achieve as they live out their limited number of days. Till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And then in verse 4, Solomon tells us, I made me great works, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards. So Solomon seeks personal fulfilment on a creative level. He takes a keen interest in the practical production of wine. I planted me vineyards. And there was probably a a very important commercial aspect to that activity. Solomon threw himself into grand architectural projects. He doubtless loved beautiful buildings and found them inspiring, as they indeed are. Beautiful buildings are indicative of a thriving culture and civilization. And if you look at our own nation, we have some beautiful buildings, but they tend to belong to the past, don't they? What does that tell us about the present civilization? So Solomon throws himself into great aesthetic and artistic creativity. Now the grand question is, will he find true fulfilment in these things? Verse 5, I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water, to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Now what we have described here in verse 5 is the king engaging in stunningly beautiful landscaping and horticultural projects. He even constructed a sophisticated system of reservoirs to irrigate great nurseries of trees which he had planted. What a beautiful place Israel would have been under King Solomon. It would have been breathtaking. Under Solomon, by the blessing of God, Israel was becoming something of an earthly paradise. With its stately buildings and its beautiful parks. All the grandeur and beauty would one day take away the breath of the visiting monarch, the Queen of Sheba. She was overwhelmed. Uh, the nobility and the stature and the beauty of Jerusalem when she came to visit Solomon. We just get a small taste of this, even in parts of London today. You, you see the foreign tourists looking at 
certain buildings. And they are really impressed. Those buildings, though, actually come from a time in our history when the influence of the Christian gospel was far greater. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were witnessing outside the Houses of Parliament, which had been uh, recently renovated, with lots of gold braid and so on, and Big Ben, and um, in the spring sunshine. It's a really impressive sight. Well, that's just a, 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 a tiny picture of what Jerusalem was like in Solomon's day. Verse 7, I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. So Solomon establishes a magnificent royal household with numerous servants. Over time, the servants would not only uh, be brought into bonded labour situations, but they would actually be born within his household, growing up in his household, and so being utterly dedicated to the royal service. Verse 7 informs us that Solomon became an expert in animal husbandry. The breadth of his talents is quite remarkable. The term small cattle in verse 7 refers to sheep and goats as opposed to the great cattle which are oxen and cows. Solomon possessed enormous herds of both types of cattle. And this also, of course, is indicative of the Lord's blessing with economic prosperity, because in Solomon's day, prosperity was usually measured by possession of herds of cattle and so forth. Now, verse 8, he says, verse 8... I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. Solomon's wealth, of course, was enormous. I got me silver and gold, special treasures from other parts of the world. The peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces may refer to the gifts given to him by the kings of other nations, including those subservient to him. The wealth just kept on rolling in to Israel. This was the way God was blessing the nation. Because whether or not nations prosper is an aspect of the providence of God. Now, we are also told in verse 8 that Solomon pursued artistic enjoyment and excellence. Especially 
by means of music. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So Solomon would have formed choirs and orchestras. He would have laid on beautiful concerts. He would have taken great delight in the musical expertise of highly skilled musicians and singers. Now, as Christians, we can, of course, appreciate great art as being the gift of God. We know that music is the gift of God. It's a wonderful aid to our worship. It's only an aid, though. It's not central to our worship. It's an aid to worship. Music can be employed to the glory of God. Who invented music? God did. And interestingly, if we think about music, there there are seven notes in an octave. And seven is the biblical number denoting divine perfection. Interesting that. However, what we also know as Christians is that these things, which are good and lovely in and of themselves, can, if approached with a wrong attitude, become idols. These things are wonderful gifts which God has given, but they must never become ends in themselves. And so no one should pursue artistic excellence in in whatever field they choose, be it literature or, or, or music or painting. No one dare pursue those things to the exclusion of seeking God. Verse nine, so I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. No king of Jerusalem had ever known such outward splendour and majesty and artistic excellence as Solomon. And notice again in verse 9 that phrase, also my wisdom remained with me. It confirms that as he indulged himself in all the pleasures which this world can offer, he did not do so in a foolish and sinful manner. He was rather conducting a grand experiment to find the source of true contentment and fulfilment in life. He did so as a believer, not as some kind of atheistic pleasure seeker. So his immersion in refined and sophisticated 
seeking after fulfilment, was a serious attempt to discover if the things of this world, rightly approached, can really satisfy the longings of the human heart. Verse 10, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labour, and this was my portion of all my labour. So Solomon admits here he did derive much enjoyment from the many activities in which he engaged. He feasted his eyes upon beauty, both in nature and that which is the artistic creation of men. He feasted his ears upon beautiful music. He went riding in the mornings dressed in the finest clothes and doubtless on the most magnificent horses. He would have had the most stimulating companionship. He would have had very articulate and learned friends to converse with. He drew great satisfaction from seeing come to fruition all his building, engineering, horticultural and landscaping projects. In 1 Kings 4 and verse 32... We read this of Solomon, 1 Kings 4, verse 32. He spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So he was an accomplished musical composer himself. He spake of trees, from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. So he was an expert on trees, arboriculture, I think the term is. He spake also of beasts, and of fowl, and of creeping things, and of fishes. So we learn that he excelled as a botanist and as a naturalist, a study of the natural sciences. He was a man of powerful intellect and creative ability. He was a most talented writer of songs. He possessed expert knowledge on plants ranging from the mighty cedar tree to the tiny hyssop plant. God gave the nation peace and prosperity for most of his reign, meaning that he as king could devote his energies to the pursuit of the arts and sciences. He threw himself into maximising 
every single kind of human pleasure and fulfilment which this world has to offer. He did so on an an highly intelligent and sophisticated level. He studiously ascended the highest peaks of cultural and scientific achievement. King Solomon could have held his own with Einstein, Isaac Newton, Beethoven or Shakespeare. His portion, as verse 10 of our passage puts it, that which befalls him was to rejoice in his labour. So Solomon is not denying that there was some temporary pleasure in all that he had accomplished. Yet as we see in the next verse, verse 11, his overall assessment of all his amazing achievements is startlingly negative. Look what verse 11 says. I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I had laboured to do and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Incredibly then, Solomon regards all his amazing artistic, cultural and aesthetic achievements as an ultimate vanity. Are these the words of a man who has had more opportunity than anyone who has ever lived to maximise upon human happiness and fulfilment? Yes, they are. Is Solomon really telling us there is no profit in all that he has done and that absolutely nothing of lasting value has been gained? Is he really telling us that? Yes, he is. As we see in verses 15 and 16 of this chapter, it was the realisation of his mortality, the knowledge that all men soon leave this earthly life, whether they be wise in earthly terms or whether they be fools. This made Solomon reflect upon the ultimate emptiness and futility of all his achievements. Neither a man's learning and knowledge, nor his philosophical reasoning, nor his cultural and aesthetic pleasures, nor his earthly wealth can make him immune to death. Now, if one views life purely in terms of gaining fulfilment and happiness from the things of this world, then the worldly wise, sophisticated and cultured man remains on exactly the same level 
as a brute base fool who only lives for the gratification of the moment. In other words, what Solomon is stating here, that despite all his wonderful artistic and aesthetic and the cultural achievements, he was basically no better off than the drunkard in the gutter. That is what Solomon is saying. Art, culture, aesthetics, great achievements in commerce, science and agriculture. All of these things ultimately gave to Solomon no lasting fulfilment whatsoever. And in any case, death will render all these things to be temporary and therefore worthless. So Solomon reflects that the great artist, the brilliant scientist, the profound philosopher, will meet exactly the same end as those whose lives have been far more mundane, having spent their time in the humdrum routines of lowly work. Death is indeed the greatest of all levelers. The great wealth of Solomon's kingdom and all his personal expertise in so many areas of study, along with his love of artistic beauty. Now, these were all blessings from the Lord, but they were never ends in themselves. They could not satisfy in and of themselves the deep longings of the human heart. Sport cannot do it. Culture cannot do it. Aesthetics cannot do it. All these good things can only truly be appreciated in the context of a dependence upon Almighty God. That is the only context in which to truly appreciate all these good things in life. The purpose of human existence is not the enjoyment of all these good things. And so just to give an example, the purpose of human existence is not to be able to earn so much money that you can buy a lovely house with a lovely view, looking out to sea and then just sit and enjoy it for as many years as possible. That is not the purpose of human existence. The purpose of human existence is the service of God in the light of eternity. Solomon, as he reflects upon human mortality and the brevity of life, begins to see the right perspective on all these things in the world, some of them being very good things. But there is nothing more important than the priority of humbling oneself before one's maker. So Solomon says in this verse 11, 
I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labour that I had laboured to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Far from taking pride in everything which he had achieved, Solomon actually began to hate what he had been doing with his life. He could no longer take pleasure in his great learning, his building projects, his artistic achievements, his pursuit of sensual pleasure. He actually ends up despising all these things. Now, God, of course, had already granted him sufficient wisdom to have reached this conclusion without first having to immerse himself in all that this world can offer. However, his immense earthly privileges and resources had sadly, for a while, got the better of him, clouding his perspective. And despite all his heroic endeavours in every discipline of human knowledge, and despite having achieved more personal earthly fulfilment than is normally possible for anyone, this highly gifted and intelligent man ended up by asserting that true happiness is not to be found in any human pursuit or pleasure. Having milked the world for the very best which it has to offer, having soared to the lofty heights of personal pleasure and cultural achievement, Solomon ended up saying, it is all a terrible waste of time. And Solomon comes to this conclusion, which he should have come to earlier, that the true secret of personal fulfilment is to fear God and serve him. How does the book of Ecclesiastes end? Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So Solomon ends the book of Ecclesiastes by asserting that real fulfilment is only to be found in living life in obedience to and to the glory of Almighty God. We need to learn from Solomon's experience. And as the Apostle John reminds us in that first epistle, 1 John 2 and verse 15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So let us learn from Solomon's experience 
and never allow the passing pleasures of this world, no matter how good in themselves they might be, from pursuing the priority of walking with Jesus Christ in all holiness of life. Amen.